And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, May 24th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, today in this week's special series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, a former federal prison warden has ideas for bureau reform. Plus, the GAO's resident expert on the Bureau of Prisons has a long list of ideas for improving that worst place to work. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, that special salary rate for federal cyber and IT employees, its future isn't all that clear. The Agriculture Department is telling employees there's no path to implement the special rate without more money from Congress. The Veterans Affairs Department says it will implement their special rate for its cyber and IT people later this year. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with what he's learned about the latest here. And just tell us more about the special salary rate, who proposed it, and what's the status? So the special salary rate is something we've been hearing about since late last year. This is something that has been proposed by the Department of Veterans Affairs. They led the charge in a multi-agency proposal to the Office of Personnel Management to essentially allow those agencies to set a higher rate of pay for in-demand cyber and IT positions across these agencies and across government. The Office of Personnel Management did approve that special salary rate in January of this year. But in terms of the next steps, that could be really up in the air at this point because we have not really seen too much eagerness to implement that SSR. But the OPM, that is to say the White House, did approve the idea. So OPM did approve it. But what we're looking at here is a pretty uphill battle for implementation. We're, of course, talking at a time where the debt ceiling negotiations are going on. Agencies are not really quite sure what that's going to mean for them right now, but something they are prepared for is a significant scaling back of non-defense discretionary spending. And this is the sort of thing where they would see an uptick in discretionary spending if they were to honor and implement this SSR. Given this, we have heard from multiple sources that OPM has put the SSR on hold pending additional implementation guidance. What we heard officially from OPM is that they have not yet made a decision on an implementation date for the SSR. So VA is going ahead with it. And when it turns around, there's going to be nobody behind there. The only agency we've learned that will definitively implement this SSR is the VA. And they are prefacing all this by saying that they will honor these rates even if there is no official SSR that does go forward across the government. All right. So that means it's not going to go into effect so far as we can tell government-wide then. We have not heard anything definitively to that effect at this point. You know, this really does have a long history here. We spoke with Ron Sanders, a former Federal Salary Council chairman. He has worn a lot of hats in the federal workforce in cybersecurity spaces. He said that in terms of this history of SSRs, this is not the only one that we've seen in effect. This is always something that takes a considerable amount of effort to get all agencies on board in terms of a consensus of where these positions need a higher rate and what agencies are prepared to offer them. Client agencies are going to come to that table with as many different opinions as there are agencies. And reaching a consensus so that when you do issue a special salary rate, everybody is on board with it, that's not an easy thing. It's a real migraine. A real migraine, yeah, a good way to put it. And VA, as we said, is going to go ahead with it. What are their plans? What do they plan to do specifically to get this thing into people's hands? Well, what we have heard from VA at this point is that 
regardless of whether this SSR goes into effect or not government-wide, the VA will honor these rates, and they will do that unilaterally, perhaps, through authorities they have in the PACT Act, the toxic exposure legislation uh, that was signed into law last year. That is a pretty big bill, and one of the many things that bill does is it actually gives the VA pretty broad authority to set special rates for the kinds of people it needs to bring in, and that is just what the VA is prepared to do here. They recognize that this might not go forward government-wide, and so they have their own plan to make sure this is going to go forward. And they have set a timeline of this going forward, these special rates, by the fourth quarter of this fiscal year. And we mentioned at the top that the Department of Agriculture is telling its workforce it's not going to happen, or they don't quite know how it can happen conditioned upon money they might get from Congress? So USDA at this point has not definitively said that they will not implement the SSR, but they have made it pretty clear that it's a tough thing to do for them at this point and that there is no certain path for them to implement it. This is pretty indicative, honestly, of a couple of agencies we've heard, but this is the most black and white we've seen it spelled out here. We did obtain a memo from Chief Information Officer Gary Washington at USDA. There was a lot of back and forth with the employees that would potentially see a higher rate of pay under this SSR. USDA is a pretty big agency. 3,700 employees would be covered under the SSR if they were to implement it. And USDA did the numbers, they did the math, and they figured out it would cost about $51 million in additional costs to implement the SSR. USDA, they're IT office is a fee-for-service uh, type organization, and so rather than impose those costs on the rest of the agency, they would need to get this money from Congress to honor the SSR. There's been a back and forth about that. And one of the things that they have made pretty clear here is that there's no certain future for this SSR because they are not necessarily certain that Congress will give them that $51 million. And just to be clear, this special rate is for existing employees as well as recruits? Yes, yeah, so it would be current employees as well as new employees coming into the organization. Got it. Any other agency efforts you know about? Well, you know, what we've seen in the past in this is that, you know, there was a pretty significant effort to come out of the Department of Homeland Security. Their cyber talent management system was something that has been long in development. We have seen them put that system to work here. This is something that has been in the works for about seven years. This is something that Congress gave them the authority to do back in 2014. What we've seen so far is that it's a little underwhelming what they've been able to do here in terms of this special personnel and workforce and pay system that they have. They had targeted using that system to make 150 hires. They've made about 80 hires at this point through that cyber talent management system. Right. So just having the money available doesn't guarantee success, you've got to have a good recruitment strategy at some point. Well, it remains unclear even what the uh, the gaps are in terms of this system not going forward as intended. You know, what we've seen from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is that they haven't even really gone through this accepted service route to bring people in, that they have gone through the traditional Title V hiring that you've seen across the federal workforce. And so what we see here is that, at least with CISA, they don't see this need to have the special pay authority to bring cyber recruits on board, that they're able to get the talent they need through the standard process. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the next part of our special series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, a former federal warden has ideas for the Bureau of Prisons Reform. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Federal Correctional Facility is the basic unit in the Bureau of Prisons, part of the Justice Department. In our Federal Drive series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, we now turn to a corrections consultant who once was warden of ADX Florence, the system's most secure prison. The Colorado facility is also known as the Supermax. For lessons learned there and how BOP can regain its footing, we turn to the former warden, Robert Hood. Mr. Hood, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And just briefly review your own career with the Bureau of Prisons, because you did rise to that level of warden, which is kind of field captain or field general, you might say. Sure. Especially with my background, I, I started out as a prison teacher in the New Jersey system, state system. I went to Texas. So uh, joining the Bureau in 1981, moving up, I finally moved into the chief position right there in D.C. as the chief of the Office of Internal Affairs, and then eventually moved to several wardenships in Tucson, Sheridan, Oregon, and finally the Alcatraz of the Rockies, they call it, out here in Colorado. And uh, Janet Reno, when she was alive, uh, she uh, provided me my senior executive service level back in the 2,000 years, somewhere in that area. What are the challenges in being a prison warden? I don't think people really understand that job, except what they've seen with, you know, Carl Malden in some old movie a thousand years ago. <laughs> but that's one of the challenges, the media versus the reality. But uh, it's the balancing out. To me, it's the balancing out uh, of security and treatment. They're two different parts of the prison, if you will. But, you know, on one hand, you're holding them, you're using security, you're shaking people down and strip searching this and that. But also you're saying, we care about you because 95% of you are coming out. So it's, it's the balance of security and treatment. It's holding staff and inmates accountable. Um, the, the fact that in the Bureau, 60, I think it's around 66,000 inmates, around 44% or so of the inmates, drug-related offenses. So again, some people, not to get into the Stockholm Syndrome, but where people you know, uh, are, are overly compassionate, uh, that's, that's a challenge for us. And also the introduction of that contraband coming into the prison. Technology, cell phones, drones, people trying to sneak things in, people... Uh, you know, inmates are inmates, and, and as far as them wanting to get out, that's their job, uh, some of them, and uh, our job is to keep them in. On a recruitment basis, it's a, it's a gender situation. About 72% of the staff are male, 28% are female, and so we look at the diversity or the lack of diversity, trying to match the inmate population as much as possible. And unfortunately, the day-by-day challenge is some of the institutions are in remote areas or high-cost-of-living area. That is hard to pay someone $50,000 when they're in downtown New York City. Sure, and it's hard to get someone from New York City to move to Florence, Colorado. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> All right. and Definitely. One of the corrections officers that we'll be hearing from says that the communications have broken down between management at facilities and the rank-and-file corrections officers. And that's one of the reasons that it gets low ratings in the best places to work in the federal employee viewpoint scores. What do you say to that issue? You know, how is it different now, perhaps, than it was in your time? We always had problems with communication. That's just part of... uh the, the system, if you will. However, I think the difference, and I concur with that individual's comments, is that we've had, we need consistent leadership. There's only been 12 directors in the Bureau of Prisons since 1930 when we became a system, but we've had five in the last 12 years. And again, you know, what does that have to do with communications? A lot. When you have a turnover in leadership, 
And then we have just the uh, lack of transparency. You know, the fact that we have 122 prisons, 160,000 inmates, and around 34,000 staff. You know, it's a large system. So in, in fairness, communications are, are kind of tough. But on the other hand, I think, the, in my opinion, from an outsider, you know, looking back at the system, it seems like with the uh, consistency and leadership, less of a concern or no concern when I was coming up through the system of what we call augmentation. That's when custody, you know, correctional officers, um, are strapped because there's less and less working into the prison system. So we're taking someone out of a, a medical field, you know, someone who's working as a nurse or my secretary at the prison and putting them in a, a guard tower with a weapon. And so that kind of stuff, I think, impacts the communications because you're going to work thinking, I'm, I'm here to save or work with the inmates. I'm the, what I said before, I'm a program-oriented person. I'm a teacher like Bob Hood years ago, but I'm coming in thinking I'm going to help a guy get his GED and someone's handing me an M16 and saying, get in the gun tower. So those things, I think, just add up, but mostly, in my opinion, mostly, it's the, uh, the the need for consistent leadership. We're speaking with Robert Hood. He's a former Bureau of Prisons warden and now a consultant in prison matters. And so what do you think the BOP, we have a new director in place and very promising person, and she's in touch with the union, in touch with the employees, maybe getting a little bit around the middle management there. What do you think she could do to start making that place that is more effective by making it a better place to work. I've been to many of her prisons. She came from Oregon. I was the federal warden, the only federal warden in Oregon, and she was the director of corrections there. So I've been through her institutions. I've met her once or twice in that capacity. So just to qualify that, right on top of the list is getting the uh, transparency going. You know, we need to have the public trust of us. Right now, you know, we have 122 prisons, and uh, there's a wall there for a reason to keep the inmates out. But it's not to keep Tom, like a person like you, asking a couple of questions out. You know, we're trying we're trying to work it work just in a manner where we have more transparency. I think she needs to look at pushing the one, and I think she will, pushing the mission, the re-entry mission. We have 40,000 inmates coming out of the federal system every year, every year, and 43% or so are going to come back. That's a failure rate as far as I'm concerned. I think she needs to come in, and I think she will come in and try to get the custody folks on the same page as the program-oriented folks. Like I said before, you know, the, the difference between security and treatment initiatives. So to get that banging, banging the drum to say, guess what? All staff, every single BOP staff needs to be held accountable for what we're doing on reentry, getting these guys out and getting this to stay out. This suggestion to you and whoever, you know, I'm sure your audience is listening is, it's not going to be popular with the Bureau of Prisons, but it's the age retirement issue or requirement issue. Right now, you can have uh, 10 years in corrections in the state system. You can knock on the door and say, hey, I'm Bob Hood. I want to join you. I have a master's degree and I'm 38 years old. And they're going to say, take a walk. You must be under 30 37 years of age to be hired by the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and you must get out by 57. And so think about that. If uh, I'm above 57 now, but if the law was different, I wouldn't be talking to you because I wouldn't be allowed to be talking to you. But more importantly, I'd still be there. I truly would still be working for the Bureau of Prisons at my age if they didn't say it's time to go at 57 which is by law. So they need to look at that and perhaps the reclassification of staff. When you think about it, all BOP staff are federal law enforcement officers. 
first, regardless whether you're a teacher, you're a preacher, you're whatever it may be. So when you think about that, that's great because when you retire, you have retirement for life as a law enforcement officer. It was good for me, so I hate to make it less good for others, but the reality is they need to look at that. And does everyone need to be classified as a federal law enforcement officer? I'm sure Ms. Peters, Director Peters, we're also, I know she's going to be looking at the uh, reduction of mandatory second and third shifts, unless there's an emergency where a staff member comes into work, they have uh, child care needs, they have their family home, uh, you know, they have a, maybe even another job to go to, and all of a sudden someone says, you need to work two shifts. Now you're going to work 16 hours or three shifts, and you don't know that when you came to work that day. That's tough. That's tough if you're really trying to recruit people. And you can't, and I don't think she will, assume that pay retention, no bonuses. Oh, yeah, if you come with us and you stay a year, we're going to give you a bonus, and that's going to lower staff turnover. It's good. I'm not saying you can't get more staff in the process of doing sure. that. However, it's not not as, as a, a much of a benefit when you really compare to the other things I just mentioned. So it doesn't sound primarily like a money problem because they are authorized for 40,000 people. They only have 35. There, there's about a six five, 6,000 person shortfall that they're budgeted for. But on the other hand, I do hear from several quarters that they are way behind in physical maintenance of facilities, and that can be bad for both employees and the inmates. Oh, definitely. If you're going to cut back, and sometimes you get the phone call from the director's office and say, all 122 prisons, we need to cut back 5%. And that comes down from the Hill or wherever, but they're you know across the board, across the government. But you're right. We have... Uh, inmates and staff working in some capacities in a you know, 100-year-old prison. And uh, it's a security nightmare. It's not fun to come to work. And then you, even if you have a mo- fairly modern one, you know, we're, there's only been three supermaxes in history, uh, federal supermaxes, uh, Alcatraz, Marion, Illinois, and then, of course, uh, the one here in Colorado where I was warden. But even if it's a very modern-looking prison, it's the nature of the prison also that might turn off and have a great turnover of staff because you're, you know, you're looking at 12 gun towers. When I went to work, I liked it. I liked the kind of environment, but not everyone coming to work for the first time as a teacher, preacher, uh, you know, whatever uh, officer, whatever it may be, likes looking at what we had, which is 12 gun towers, no view of the Rocky Mountains that are out there, and inmates locked in their cell 23 hours a day, not just because they're bad and they're going to be there for a couple of days, for the rest of their life. They're sentenced to that kind of environment. So it's, it's not for everyone. And I think when we add the Shawshank Redemptions, some of the great movies that are out there, it also makes you interested, but then you don't necessarily want to sign up and and maybe stay. Yeah, Birdman of Alcatraz has a more colorful sound than Escapee (laughs) from Florence, Colorado, or whatever the case might be. Exactly. But there's hope. I mean, the agency could take concrete steps and get get out of that cellar of best places to work and maybe not be the worst. Right. And it's hard to say, you know, look at a map right now, look at 122 prisons. And even though they ask the staff, would you like to go here? And, they, you know, some, they pay your way sometimes for your home and everything else to transport around. Uh, I moved 13 times in my career. And, uh, you know, maybe that's why I became a warden. Not everybody can do that. They have friends, family, they, you know, the children in the school and stuff. And they say, no, I'll stay where I am. So if you're in the same location, or if you're lucky enough to say, I want to become a, a lieutenant, I'm a correctional officer making 50000 I want to be a lieutenant, I want to go from uh, Colorado right here, but they say, okay, we have a job for you, it's in Hawaii. 
well, you're going to cut your salary in half. So, so you can't think that a promotion in the bureau is really a promotion because on paper, you feel better because you moved up, but you don't feel better when you get the paycheck because you might be going to, God forbid, I, I shouldn't pick on these places, but you know, it might be LA or New York City or some high cost of living area where you'd be better off in so many local jobs than joining the Bureau. Robert Hood is a former Bureau of Prisons warden, now in consulting. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview together with all of the interviews in our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tomorrow, we'll talk to two corrections officers about life working in prisons and for a troubled federal agency. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a new federal acquisition rule would straighten out small business rights. But first, the GAO's resident expert on the Bureau of Prisons has a long list of ideas for improving that worst place to work in the federal government. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Like a stern and compassionate teacher, my next guest has been examining and evaluating the Bureau of Prisons and treating it with tough love. For specific ideas on how the Bureau could rise from the worst place to work in the federal government, we turn to the Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Greta Goodwin. Ms. Goodwin, good to have you back. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we've talked about so many issues. I mean, they have acquisition issues, they have programming issues, but in terms of their employees... Everything that I have learned in researching this series is that somehow it comes down to the low levels of staffing relative to what they are authorized and budgeted to have staffing for correctional officers, the main linkpin in the whole prison system. What's your assessment of, of the workforce-related issues there? So as we talk about in, in all of the work we've done, there are some long-standing staffing challenges at the Bureau of Prisons. One of the main ones, of course, is about their authorized level versus their actual levels of staffing. This current fiscal year, they have about 40,000 authorized staffing levels, but right now they have only about 34 to 35 staff on hand. So that means they're short-staffed. And with them being so short-staffed, correctional officers and the other people who are there might have to engage in overtime, or they might have to be augmented to work in other areas for which they don't normally work in every day. That can present a lot of stress and a lot of exhaustion on the staff that are there. So that's one of the reasons why some of the staffing challenges are so severe. And we see it with this short staffing that they have. Right, because you have to have a minimum number of people at a given moment in the cell blocks and doing the work of supervising what's going on there. And if you don't have enough correctional officers, then they have to work sometimes two shifts in a row. Absolutely. And not just that. If you don't, so that's the overtime piece. The augmentation piece is maybe someone who works in another part of the prison facility who isn't a day-to-day corrections officer. Maybe they're in kind of the main office or maybe they're, you know, in records. They might have to come in to help assist. That's, that is something that they refer to as augmentation. And while everyone at BOP is trained as a corrections officer, if that's not your day-to-day, day-in, day-out duties, you might not be as comfortable doing that. But then you might, if you're, you know, you're working in the records office, you might have to be augmented to help and be a corrections officer for that day. That adds to that person's stress and it adds to the corrections officers who are on duty because they're trying to be mindful of the safety and security of the individual who who had been augmented in addition to ensuring the safety and security 
of themselves and the prisoners that they're overseeing. And the prisoners probably have exquisite knowledge of, oh, look, here comes the lady from records department. She hasn't been on the floor in a while. That could be. That could be. And that adds to the additional stress and concern for you know, the safety of everyone involved. And you did answer the question I had. Everyone that goes to work in a prison facility has basic training in being a correctional officer? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Because uh, at any point you might have to perform those duties. What have you, I mean, you've recommended over the years that they have to get up to full staffing. What are some of the specific ways they could actually do that? Yeah, thank you, Tom. So a couple of things that we have recommended over the years, specifically as it re- relates to staffing, we've asked and recommended that BOP develop and implement a reliable method for calculating their staffing levels or amend their existing methods. So when we did a report looking specifically at BOP staffing back in 2021, there were times where it it wasn't clear if BOP had a good sense for what all of their staffing challenges were. The methods that they had in place weren't always as reliable as they could have been. When we issued our report, we made that recommendation. Another recommendation that we made as it relates to staffing is for them to do a risk assessment of their overtime use. Because having the correctional guards do overtime and, and having that, you know, having that overtime in and of itself, that leads to exhaustion for the actual officer. And that could affect the safety of the officer and the and the people who are incarcerated. And then we asked that they kind of develop and implement a method where they could routinely collect and evaluate their employee assistance program. So they have this employee assistance program, but at the time we were doing the work, they hadn't really done a lot of evaluation of that program. And in particular, we wanted them to find out what the actual employees thought of their employee assistance programs. So there are a couple of things, well, more than a couple. There are a few recommendations that we issued that we think would help them get a better handle on what their staffing challenges are and what the effects of those staffing challenges are on the people who are working there. We're speaking with Greta Goodwin. She's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And that question, EAP, Employee Assistance Plan, there has been a steady, maybe not a huge, but a steady and unfortunate drumbeat of suicides among correctional officers. And have you dealt with that one? When we did the report in 2021, we did. We looked at the suicide numbers for the corrections officers per 100,000. And we kind of compared that with the overall suicide numbers in the country. And those numbers were, you know, pretty high. The suicide rates of correctional officers, they were relatively high, kind of consistent with the overall population. But we're talking about a smaller population. So those numbers are very high. Some of the recommendations we made focus on BOP getting at why that's happening. So starting to collect data and information, you know, before someone gets to that point, What does BOP see happening with their corrections officers? So the Employee Assistance Program provides, you know, grief counseling, basic counseling. If someone's having family concerns, all of that counseling. But BOP had never really done an an evaluation of the program itself. And so we recommended that they do that so they could get a better handle on what types of issues might be coming up in some of those within their Employee Assistance Program. And I will say that the recommendations that we made to BOP about their employee assistance program, they have taken those up. For example, one of the recommendations we made around BOP's ability to address the suicide data that it has, we asked that they utilize that data to assess the suicide rate among the BOP staff. And we asked that they tailor what they were learning to their suicide prevention training materials. 
and that would help them get a better handle on what was actually happening and ensure that they were making available the programs that were you know, efficient and that were working. And so what we do know, we issued the recommendation, that recommendation has been closed as implemented because BOP did issue some new training materials and guidance that they developed in conjunction with a working group. So they pulled together a working group to get a better handle and a better sense for what was happening. So they, So in conjunction with that working group, they modified their training materials. So they have a new training materials in place. Our sense when we saw those materials is that it provided a clear and precise purpose and language to help people who might be at the point where they're considering suicide or just might be in need of some kind of additional counseling. They also, in those training materials, provided information for the National Suicide Prevention Line and they also provided additional information for their employee assistance program. So that way, individuals could view the training materials, look to see what's available to them, and then make use of that. And so that has helped BOP increase its understanding about the extent to which the deaths by suicide are occurring in their, in their workplace. And so it's helping them understand trends, and they have better tailored their efforts to present um, suicide. That was a couple of years ago. We will be circling back but it did address our recommendation. And in the larger sense, they have issues of salary levels because some of the prisons are in really remote areas, which leads to a recruitment issue because there's just not that many people versus if you're recruiting for Los Angeles or New York City area where there are also federal prisons. But then the salaries that might be attractive in the rural distant areas don't cut it in Los Angeles and New York areas. Have you made any recommendations on that general issue, matching salaries and recruitment with the geographical locations that vary so widely for the BOP. So you are correct, Tom. One of the things we learned when we were doing this work is just that people, the locations where they are, are not places where people are always excited to live. And what BOP was doing, they were providing different types of incentives to get recruitment and retention incentives. They were also providing student loan repayments. They do provide higher rates of pay for some of their more specialized positions, such as a physician or a psychologist, because those those positions can also be really difficult to hire for with BOP, and particularly if you're in some of the more rural areas. Some of the recommendations that we made around that was basically that they understand how those staffing incentives were actually working. We asked them to develop some guidelines on uh, performance measures and goals so that they could have a better sense for whether these staffing incentives were actually helping. And if they weren't, we asked them to give some thought about adjusting those incentives as appropriate. That particular recommendation, they've done some things, but it still remains open because they they need to do some ongoing work to determine the effectiveness of those staffing incentives. So it's something that we did pay attention to, and we know that BOP is closely watching that, and they're in the process of hiring a contractor to get a better handle on whether those incentives are are actually helping. We'll be circling back on that one. And what about the continuity of leadership? Michael Horowitz on Monday noted that in his 11 years as IG of the Justice Department, he has dealt with eight BOP directors, eight of them in 11 years. I think one of your reports said there were a parade of six in six years. Now, Ms. Peters, again, we're going to be speaking with her later this week. She's been there, what, a year now? and so She's been there about a year. That's absolutely correct. One of the reasons BOP, the management of the federal prison system, is on GAO's high-risk list has to do with leadership and leadership commitment. And it has been six directors in the past six years. That can make it really difficult to, first, you got to develop and the change, and then you want to implement the change. 
And if you keep having different leaders, one leader might have a really great idea, but then the next leader might decide to do something else. And so it does lead to a very high level of inconsistency. And that actually doesn't help for staff morale either to know that, you know, someone comes in, there's this idea, just when you're getting ready to possibly implement the idea, that person goes away then a new director comes in and might could possibly start over. Plus, if you have a sclerotic middle management layer, that's a bureaucratic process of any organization. They figure, well, this one's going to be gone soon, too. We don't really need to change anything. That's about the leadership, right? And that's about how well they are interacting and the trust level between the leadership and the, and, and staff. Those are some human capital issues that I my understanding is that the current director is very well aware of. She has the kind of background that I think would be well suited for her, for her leadership for, for this bureau. She herself was a director of prison system, a state prison system, and she has an inspector general's background. I know that they are undergoing some strategic planning, so she's beginning to think broadly about what BOP will look like. And now that it's on the higher risk list, the GAO will not let the BOP off the hook so quick, will you? We will not. We will not, Tom. And with the high-risk list, our Comptroller General has met with Director Peters. They've talked about a path forward. We will be working and closely with BOP. We will be monitoring the things that they're doing to address the issues that we raise on the high-risk list. And we will just continue to follow up. They have had longstanding issues and challenges. They're not going to go away overnight. And But GAO will be there to pay attention and to monitor how things are developing. Greta Goodwin is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview together with all of the interviews in our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tomorrow, we'll hear from two correctional officers on working inside federal prisons. Be sure to subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a new federal acquisition rule would straighten out some small business rights. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Federal Acquisition Regulation Council is out with a new proposed rule regarding small businesses. Specifically, it would align the FAR with the Small Business Administration when it comes to small business innovation research and small business technology transfer together known as SBIR, STTR. Here with the details of what's actually going on here, Haynes Boone procurement attorney, Zach Prince. And Zach, I guess there is some variance between what the SBA wants for the government's rights versus the contractor's rights under these SBIR contracts versus what is actually in the FAR. Tell us what's happening. So just as some background for the listener, the SBIR, STTR programs are these small business R&D programs. They're intended to strengthen the role of innovative small business concerns in federally funded research and research and development programs. And so last year they were reauthorized by Congress after extensive discussions or some changes to the program. In a nutshell, the program requires agencies with R&D budgets that are over $100 million to award about 3.2% the small businesses under SBIR, a smaller amount under the STTR program, And the way that they incentivize small businesses to be part of this program is they give them a broader band of IP rights than they would have under the baseline FAR and DFARS rules. There's also potentially sole source awards. It is really of interest to small businesses. The problem for a number of years, and this isn't just in this area, 
the FAR Council has not done a great job of staying on top of changes in underlying programs, particularly with SBA. And so there's been a disconnect in the DFARS as well, but also in the FAR, between the language that the SBA has put out and the language you actually see in your clauses. The Small Business Administration wants contractors under the SBIR, STTR programs to have longer and more complete rights to their intellectual property at the expense of the government rights, but that's not what the FAR currently allows. Is that the issue? That's about right. So the FAR currently provides for SBIR, STTR rights, which are a separate rights category, to grant the government the right to use the data for any government purpose much broader than what the SBA contemplates. Uh, it also, as a matter of the time limit, it might be essentially the same, but the markers are different. The current rule under the FAR is that SBIR rights expire and convert to government purpose rights after four years from the conclusion of contract deliverables. The new SBA rule measures it from 20 years from the date of contract award. It's just an easier timeline to administer most cases probably going to be a longer period too. Right. So the idea is that the FAR is basically oriented toward protecting the government's rights. SBA is oriented toward giving the small businesses this economic development potential they would get by doing work for the government and in so doing create intellectual property that has commercial value. Right. And that's the net effect. It's probably more fair to say that the FAR is just stuck in a slightly older version of this program. Right. Got it. So the general idea is we want the FAR to be able to reflect what the program goals that it's supporting. That's right. The DFARS has this disconnect, too. But that's why under the DFARS, they've been operating under a deviation since 2019. So in effect, the DFARS has already been implementing the SBA rule. It just hasn't done it quite yet through a formal DFARS amendment. Right, because each of the armed services has this elaborate SBIR, STTR program office that they have hundreds of people just devoted to that type of work. That's right. It has a lot more focus in the DOD world. We're speaking with Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone Law Firm. And just give us a sense of the types of contracts. What do these look like, SBIR, STTR contracts that would be subject to the new FAR rules, the new DFAR rules. What type of work is this? This is not just body shop type of stuff. Oh, no, not at all. This is R&D work. This is real research and then research and development. There are three possible phases. The first, phase one, is really just technical merit analysis. It's usually competed. It's usually low dollar value. Short periods of performance, not much money involved, just to figure out if there's any merit in the program that's being explored. Phase two is continuing the research, research and development from phase one. And then phase three is really the commercialization efforts. That's where the big bucks are spent. Right. And I guess my question is, is there any possibility that these types of contracts can get outside of the FAR altogether just by using other transaction authorities? Does that happen? That could be possible. Uh, STTR in particular is not always contracts. I haven't seen SBIR as OTAs, but it could be. All right. Is there any evidence that the government has abused the privilege of having you know, longer rights or more extensive rights to this particular data? Because, I mean, that does come up from time to time that contractors of all sizes feel the government has maybe not been as careful as the contractors wish it had been in the use of what results from a contract. So what we've heard some of is the government forcing contractors to give up source code 
when they're developing computer software, which the government's view is great. Now we have this unlimited license internally to the government, at least to use this computer software, however we want, which is not really the intent of the program. So there are contracting officers who are trying to get contractors to give up more rights than the program would otherwise allot to them. And that defeats the whole point of the program. I mean, the program is okay in theory if the government gets what it needs for its research purposes. And if the contractor under an SBIR, STTR type of program then is able to develop this into a billion-dollar business, who cares? Good for them. It is good for them. And, uh, you know, in an ideal world, the government's view is we want to spur small businesses to innovate. And we're going to use our DOD dollars, our government dollars to do that. The government gets a license to do what they want with it. Small business has the right to commercialize it and some exclusivity for a while. Ideally, that's a great program. The problem is that the rules are nebulous. There's been this disconnect between the regulations from the SBA on the one hand and then the FAR Council on the other. And then you've just got contracting officers out there demanding more rights than they're entitled to. All right. So this rule is in what state now? It's proposed. What are the timelines looking like? And will you be commenting? Will your firm be commenting? Well, <laughs> the ABA's public contract law section is working on comments, and some of my colleagues are part of that process. I usually would be, but uh, I had some illness and had to duck out. But essentially, this is something that people that represent these companies support. This is a good rule change? It is a good rule change. There are a few points that could be refined. There's still some disconnects between the DFARS and the FAR, just on basic definitions of unlimited rights. For those listeners who are familiar with the data rights regimes under the FAR and DFARS, the DFARS is much better. It's very nuanced. It's quite sophisticated. The FAR is very simple. There are some basic issues there that could be improved to homogenize the two. But from the SBA perspective, for this program in particular, the rule does a very good job. And do we have any sense of which side of the government does more in SBIR, STTR work? Is it Defense Department or is it the civilian side? It's definitely Defense Department. I haven't looked at dollar comparisons. That's just my sense. But it seems to me it's mostly DOD. Department of Energy does quite a lot, too, but it's still primarily DOD. Because you would think that the ability to commercialize broadly something that is developed would be easier on the civilian side than on the DOD side, where you're aimed at you know combat types of systems which don't have a lot of commercial usage. That's true, but there's plenty that DOD funds, not the least being quite a lot of airframes and uh, aviation improvements, but vehicles and computers and all sorts of interesting tech. All right, maybe they'll develop a better airline seat so we don't all suffer to death when flying in a former bomber or something. Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The 2023 edition of our May We Say Thank You campaign continues in support of Public Service Recognition Week earlier and Military Appreciation Month through May. You can send a thank you e-card to a fellow federal employee or a service member or a customer if you're a contractor. Visit federalnewsnetwork.com and click on May We Say Thank You, sponsored by NARF. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.
And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, May 24th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, today in this week's special series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, a former federal warden has ideas for Bureau of Prisons reform, plus the GAO's resident BOP expert on fixing hiring and employee suicide problems. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal employees looking to retire have a clearer picture of what retirement processing looks like from the inside. A new retirement quick guide from the Office of Personnel Management outlines each step of the process, what feds can expect, and how to avoid some delays, like maybe working longer. But bigger plans from OPM to modernize retirement, they're still on the horizon. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with the latest. This quick guide, is this to stave off the wolves while they try to really fix the program once and for all, Drew? This is looking at more immediate fixes to the retirement process, so it's not necessarily going to reduce the amount of time that it takes for OPM to process a retirement application. But they're hoping that this information and just having things condensed in one place on their website is going to help federal employees who are looking to retire to understand, okay, these are the different steps in the process. This is where my application is likely with at each stage of that process and give them some tips on how to fix some errors in their applications. Lori Amos, who's Deputy Associate Director for OPM Retirement Services, explains the end goal. To be able to give them information about the voluntary retirement process. We want information at their fingertips. And so by them using these, these three pages, our hope is that it will reduce the amount of time that it takes to process a retirement application in partnership with our customer and with benefits officers, um, resulting in a reduction in our backlog. Well, that sounds a little ambitious. Just watching it happen is not going to make it necessarily speed up. But what's in this guide and how was it all developed? The guide talks about several different steps that employees will need both as they're looking to retire, so before they even apply for retirement, the steps that they're going to need to take to set that up to be able to avoid delays, and then also some of the benefits and different things that will be available to them throughout the process. So for example, OPM says that it takes about three to five months on average to process a retirement application. That's from the federal employee's date of retirement up until they get that first deposit to their bank account. And the the guide was developed in a way that they took a lot of feedback from federal employees who are either recently retired or benefits officers. They looked at frequently asked questions on the OPM's website. They found in taking all of this feedback and looking at all of this information that there was a kind of discrepancy in the understanding of the process. And Amos explained a little bit more about some of the confusion that they were seeing. For most retirees, what we learned in developing the guide is that most applicants don't understand where their case is in the process or who has the case. They think that the case is here with OPM, where you can see the first 30 or 45 days, it's still with their agency and the payroll centers. And so this allows us all to partner in managing expectations. So now the applicant or the new retiree they now know that, okay, for the first 30 or 45 days, 
I need to make sure that I'm coordinating with my benefits officer if there's any change, if there's a change in my address, or if I forgot to complete a form, or if I didn't sign a form, that I need to work with my agency to complete that action so that my case now can be completed and submitted and moved forward. So much for sailing off into the sunset, but she does outline some of the most common causes then of a slowdown in your processing. Right, and those can come from both sides. So one of the most common errors is missing signatures on some of the forms that employees will need to submit to their retirement application. But there are also things that can be a little bit less in control from the employee's perspective. So things like court orders, federal positions that have special annuities, so firefighters, law enforcement officers, that type of thing, compensation claims, or federal employees who worked at multiple different agencies throughout their career, all those different things can slow down the time it takes for OPM to process retirement. And again, a lot of this is looking at more immediate fixes, and OPM's process is paper-based, so I think that just is generally slowing down the process as well here. And what do they hope will result from this guide, just simply coming in with applications that are more complete and more ready to process, and that alone could speed up things? Right. The idea is to be a little bit more proactive here. So by giving federal employees this information and explaining the breakdown of what they're going to need, how the steps progress, they're hoping that this will mean there are fewer errors from the front end when employees apply for retirement. Ultimately, that could lead to a shorter timeline because OPM wouldn't have to go back and fix those errors. And that ultimately can hopefully shrink the retirement claims backlog that is over OPM's steady state goal currently. You can imagine all of these paper forms missing this or missing that signature or that piece of paper sort of shunted off into a file cabinet until the person comes up, the retiree comes up with that information. Wow. Now, OPM still has a long-term plan to modernize this in some automated fashion? Right. So the the guide is a look at the current process for retirement, but they're hoping to modernize the whole system overall. So they're having a an IT strategy that's going to be released pretty soon that'll cover through fiscal 2026. And in that, they're going to outline you know, what is their plan for making the Retirement Services Center within OPM a totally digital process and making it a little bit easier. There are some recent changes in at least small parts to the process. So they've introduced a chatbot that employees can use to ask common questions, and they've also staffed up in their customer service center. So they're trying to make a couple small changes here, but they have a big, a bigger modernization plan that is still likely years down the road from now. Right. They have to do some business process re-engineering because if you just automate missing documents, <laughs> they're still missing and it still takes time. Right. So I, I think that this, you know, Amos has said that this document, this guide that exists currently, it's going to be something that is updated every month and that she hopes can still be useful in some way, even if they do get to that phase of a fully modernized or fully digitized process, that this information will still in the end be useful. All right. Meantime, stock up on tuna fish and peanut butter for those 45 days <laughs> till your annuity comes through. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the next part of our special series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. A former federal warden has ideas for Bureau of Prisons reform. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.